It's good to be with you this morning. We, uh, we shifted the cameras back to the, the back of the sanctuary, and you all feel really far away now. <laughs> you guys feel nice and close, but the rest of you feel really far away, so I'll do my best to try to make eye contact with you. Uh, we are continuing in our Mark series this morning. We're looking at chapter 15 in the Gospel of Mark. So if you've got your Bibles with you, I invite you to turn to the tail end of, chapter, uh, tail end of the book of Mark, starting at chapter 15. We're going to be reading, it's a good chunk again this morning, from verses 21 to 47. Uh, it's going gonna, it's gonna to feel a little bit more like a Good Friday message this morning, but I promise it will, it will connect to Palm Sunday. So we're starting at uh, verse 21, chapter 15, verse 21. A certain man from Cyrene, Simon, the father of Alexander and Rufus, was passing by on his way in from the country, and they forced him to carry the cross. They brought Jesus to the place called Golgotha, which means the place of the skull. Then they offered him wine mixed with myrrh, but he did not take it, and they crucified him. Dividing up his clothes, they cast lots to see what each would get. It was nine in the morning when they crucified him. The written notice of the charge, against, the charge against him read, The King of the Jews. They crucified two rebels with him, one on his right and one on his left. Those who passed by hurled insults at him, shaking their heads and saying, So, you who are going to destroy the temple and build it in three days, come down from the cross and save yourself. In the same way, the chief priests and the teachers of the law mocked him among themselves. He saved others, they said, but he can't save himself. Let this Messiah, this King of Israel, come down now from the cross that we may see and believe. Those crucified with him also heaped insults on him. At noon, darkness came over the whole land until three in the afternoon. And at three in the afternoon, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lema sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? When some of those standing heard this, they said, listen, he's calling Elijah. Someone ran, filled a sponge with wine vinegar, put it on a staff, and offered it to him to drink. Now leave him alone. See if Elijah comes to take him down, he said. With a loud cry, Jesus breathed his last. The curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And when the centurion who stood there in front of Jesus saw how he died, he said, Surely this man was the Son of God. Some women were watching from a distance. Among them were Mary Magdalene, Mary, the mother of James the Younger, and of Joseph, and Salome. In Galilee, these women had followed him and cared for his needs. Many other women who had come up with him to Jerusalem were also there. It was preparation day, that is, the day before the Sabbath. So as evening approached, Joseph of Arimathea, a prominent member of the council, who was himself waiting for the kingdom of God, went boldly to Pilate and asked for Jesus' body. Pilate was surprised to hear that he was already dead. Summoning the centurion, he asked him if Jesus had already died. When he learned from the centurion that it was so, he gave the body to Joseph. So Joseph bought some linen cloth, took down the body, wrapped it in the linen, and placed it in a tomb cut out of the rock. Then he rolled a stone against the entrance of the tomb. Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of Joseph, saw where he was laid. This is the word of the Lord.
There's something really difficult, almost uncomfortable, about preaching on Jesus' crucifixion. Every year we come back to it, there's always more to unpack and to unravel. It, it hits us in new ways. It reminds me of my, my niece, my five-year-old niece, who always wants me to read the same story over and over again, because for her it just never gets old. It's never just the same old thing. You come to this passage and, and you almost don't want to touch it or overthink it. You just want to let it be like it's holy ground that, that shouldn't be analyzed. And this is because really, trying to explain the impact of the cross is like trying to narrate the history of the world. You just, you just can't encapsulate it all. It's like plucking a leaf off of a tree and, and marveling at how beautiful it is, while all the while knowing that it's part of this much bigger thing. That's what this message feels like for me this morning. It's just a small piece of a much larger puzzle, one shell on a beach covered in shells. So we're just going to pick up one of them this morning. And Lord willing, we'll encounter a mystery of the cross that fills in the picture maybe just a little bit more and makes us hunger for more. And I want to start this morning by entering us into this narrative. So I want you to imagine something with me this morning. I want you to imagine this. You're a Jew from northern Africa, walking along on your way into the city from the country. You're a little late for the Passover festival, so you're kind of in a rush. It's Friday, about 8.30 in the morning. You've got your grocery list, so you can also hit up the market before the Sabbath begins that evening, as well as the names of a few people you need to visit while you're here. But then, just over the ridge, there's a group of Roman soldiers coming towards you. You hear them before you see them. Four of them encircling a man stumbling in the middle, slashed up beyond recognition, dragging himself along and carrying a wooden beam across his, his shoulders, the familiar yoke of Roman dominance. As you draw closer, the man stumbles, gets kicked by one of the soldiers and is told to get up. But then the centurion whistles at you and bids you to come over. They order you to pick up the wooden beam and to carry it for him. So you do, because you don't have a choice, and it's quite the weight. But what weighs even more heavily on you is the appearance and presence of this man stumbling along next to you. Who is he? What did he do to deserve crucifixion? to make the Romans think that he was a threat. The soldiers take the longest route to get to the execution site to pass by as many people as possible. You're led to a place just outside of the city, a place where you've seen many others hanging before. You grew up seeing the streets of Jerusalem outside of Jerusalem lined with crucifixes. Rebels, those who had tried to fight against the empire, you know that this man would have seen them as well. Did he ever think that he would be one of them? The soldiers order you to drop the beam so that they can arrange the site. They ignore your presence from there on out, so assuming you're not in danger, you back up a little and watch the scene unfold. They offer him wine mixed with myrrh, a sort of narcotic to dull the pain, but surprisingly, he doesn't take it. They tie the two beams together and then start stripping the man of his clothes. 
At this point, you're too uncomfortable to look anymore. So you turn your face away and take further steps back when the groans and the cries become too much. You hear a thunk as the cross is dropped into the hole and the deed is done. It's the ultimate display of powerlessness, of weakness. You turn around and some of the soldiers are figuring out who gets what of this man's clothing. But another soldier is standing on a small box, reaching above the man's head to nail on a sign. A sign that indicates what crime he's committed so that everyone passing by can know. It reads, King of the Jews. And you wonder, why would he have ever dared to claim that title? Why would he want to die like this? There were two rebels being crucified with him. Were they part of his revolutionary group? There had been stories of a man leading some kind of a movement into Jerusalem, but he hadn't done anything dangerous or traitorous. He had come into the city riding on a donkey, for goodness sake. What kinds of questions would you be asking if you were Simon? What kind of impression would this scene have made on you? Would you have followed this man? We don't know for how long Simon lingered after he carried the cross of Jesus. He might have left right away. He might have lingered for hours wondering who this man was. But it's clear that the interaction left an impact. Because for him and our text, to be named the father of Alexander and Rufus implies that the Christian community came to know who this man was and who his children were. Because there's actually a Rufus mentioned by Paul in Romans 16. There's a Simeon or a Simon mentioned in Acts 13 who helps to start the Gentile mission. This man's actually from Africa. As Will Barclay puts it, we may only be Christians today, maybe, because this Passover pilgrim from northern Africa was forced to carry the cross of Christ. And ironically, it's the Roman centurion who forced him to do so, who had supervised countless crucifixions and who's the first to correctly identify who Jesus is. Ironically, it's a group of women who are the witnesses at the cross, whose testimonies would have meant nothing, who apparently had been following Jesus all along, who were the only sheep that didn't scatter. And ironically, it's a member of the council who likely would have been present at the high priest's house the night before, who would have heard the accusations against Jesus, and who now risks everything, including being unclean on the Sabbath, to do the appropriate thing and to potentially face charges for being associated with this man. See, everyone in this narrative who witnesses the sufferings of Jesus is someone who is deeply transformed by the power of his suffering, by the power of powerlessness, by the power of weakness. So that's where our focus is going to be this morning on this power. Because the reason it took the disciples so long to figure this out is because a display of powerlessness was not what they were expecting. See, revolts were happening all over the place in the first century. 
The Jewish people were anticipating God to do something. To show his power, they were reading their scriptures and were expecting the prophecies to be fulfilled in a big way. It's why they minted their coins, actually, some of which have been recently discovered, that had palm branches on them. It was a sign of revolution. Hosanna means save us. Jesus was the hope for a new kingdom on earth. They had the idea of a conquering Christ, a a Messiah coming and winning by force, essentially playing the same game as Rome against Rome. But little did they know that this, this Messiah category was too small for Jesus. Jesus, in his death, inaugurated a whole new way of thinking about power, of living within the world orders and yet not playing by their power games. In his kingdom order, transformation and peace come through a very different kind of power. His power doesn't come by brute force. It doesn't come by manipulation. It doesn't come by false promises, by over-promising and under-delivering. It doesn't come by arrogance or an assertion of authority. It doesn't come by fear or catering to other people's demands. It doesn't come by status and recognition. It doesn't come by anything in and of the power of human beings, in and of ourselves. See, worldly politics often bid us to think only of ourselves. Think about what's best for you. What do you want? What will put you ahead? What will enhance your life and lead to material flourishing? Right? Every politician promotes themselves by saying, here's what I'm going to do for you. Worldly politics is all about feeling powerful. Even Pilate ended up catering to that. Pilate released the man that the crowds had asked for. He was in a power struggle with all of the people fighting against Christ, against Jesus, and he gave him over to their demands. The greatest mistake that we can make is to think that that's how God operates. As if he's just there to cater to our demands, to help us to feel powerful in and of ourselves. Because Jesus did actually what no other king or ruler or politician has ever done. As Ed put it a few weeks ago, Jesus doesn't want the disciples to attack the Roman boat. He doesn't play by their rules. He actually creates his own boat. A new kind of king requires a new kind of kingdom. He begins a new thing, a new way of being. It starts pretty small, kind of like a little dinghy boat, maybe a canoe. But to enter into this boat, to enter into the politics or the kingdom of Jesus, is to be a people who clothe themselves with a different kind of power. It bids us, in other words, to set aside the world's idea of power, to take on the power of Christ, a power that Simon witnessed when he walked alongside of him. This and only this is what transforms the human heart and enables us to engage in a different kind of kingdom politics, to think about things differently. Because as long as we continue to seek after power and control and comfort and independence, we will not be transformed. Why? Because in his death, Christ bids us to come and die with him. Die to yourself, in other words. 
which is not a message that the world is keen to hear. Die to your illusions. Die to what you think you want. Die to your material idols, all those things that make us feel powerful, all the things that we have that make us feel like we're in control and we have power. Die to what you think is power and influence. Die to always trying to be on top. Die to always try to getting ahead. Die to always feeling a need to be right or to assert your rights. Die to all of that. Why? Because it's only in dying to ourselves that we actually see our frailty. That we see not our capacity for power, but our capacity for weakness, for selfishness, for frailty. We see how hard this really is. We see how far we fall short over and over again. We see our brokenness. And in that, we see the weight of what Christ really carried. It's a mysterious thing, but when Jesus said, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He was feeling the consequences of our brokenness. Something that he'd never felt himself. If, if we don't think that we are severely broken, if we don't believe that there's bad news before there's good news, then Jesus came for nothing. Jesus' suffering screams at the world that weakness is actually the way to transformation of the heart, that acknowledging our brokenness and our frailty is our pathway to God. Why? Because it's only in our weakness and our dependence that the true power, the power of his Holy Spirit, can enter in. It's only in acknowledging, as we sang earlier, how much we need him that the true power of his Holy Spirit can enter in. This is why he bids us to come and die, which is what the whole title of our sermon series is called. This is why he bids us to come and die. Not actual death, although sometimes that might be the case, but we die to ourselves because it's only in our fragility and our frailty that, that we will actually depend on his power. We will not do that if we are constantly fighting in our own strength. There's a scene in the book Silence. It was actually made into a movie, uh, and this, this story is not for the faint of heart. The book is by Shisaku Endo. It's about a Portuguese Jesuit priest, Father Sebastian Rodriguez, who in the 1640s is tasked to go to Japan, determined in his rigor to help the brutally oppressed Japanese Christians who are constantly being forced to apostatize or be killed. Near the end, after watching countless villagers be brutally tortured, it comes to a point that he can actually end some of their pain by simply stepping on a stone plaque that depicts the face of Christ. It was the way of showing that he was abandoning his God. And the persecutors know that they, if they can get the priest to do it, then others will follow as well. If he denounced Christ, then the power of his influence would be erased, and they would go free. He'd refused the choice a few times, for obvious reasons, but, but now, after months and months of suffering in silence and seemingly unanswered prayers, he's completely at his wit's end. 
emotionally, spiritually, psychologically exhausted, weeping as he's forced to step closer and closer to the plaque and make his choice. And in utter frailty, in utter frailty, he steps onto the face of Christ and crumples to the ground over top of it, unable to overcome the gravity of how greatly he has failed his Lord. But later on, as he recounts this narrative to someone who comes to him for spiritual guidance, he says this, Yes, I too stood on the sacred image. For a moment, this foot was on his face. It was on the face of the man who has ever been in my thoughts, on that face that was before me on the mountains, in my wanderings, in prison, on the best and most beautiful face that any man can ever know, on the face of him whom I have always longed to love. Even now, that face is looking at me with eyes of pity from the plaque rubbed flat by my feet. Trample, said those compassionate eyes. Trample. Your foot suffers in pain. It must suffer like all the feet that have stepped on this plaque. But that pain alone is enough. I understand your pain and your suffering. It is for that reason that I came. And when Sebastian protests that the Lord had been silent with him all this time, the voice replies, I was not silent. I suffered beside you. In other words, what had felt like absence was actually presence. The priest, this priest, had been trying so hard to be strong to hold on to the power of his influence, thinking that it all depended on him. He was doing this for the Lord. This was for him. It would all fall apart if he fell apart. Little did he know that actually in accepting his frailty, that it was in accepting his frailty, that he actually met his Lord for the first time. Jesus does not need us to maintain power for him. He does not need us to keep it all together and to be brave and hold back the pain and the disappointment. He's not afraid of that. He has been scorned and rejected like no one else, understood pain like no one else, abandoned by his own people, put to death for crimes he did not commit, born the weight of sins he can't even fathom in his own nature. We have all stepped on Christ. We have all abandoned him, rejected him, ignored him. He has been stepped on and stepped on and stepped on over and over again. As one of my professors once put it, this is a God who over and over says to the world, whack me, strike me, hurt me, and see what happens. See if I will not rend open the heavens and pour out my grace on you. Our task, then, is not to prove him to others by avoiding weakness or showing how perfect and flawless we are. Our task is demonstrating his power by accepting how frail we are.
that we can't do this by ourselves, that we actually can't figure everything out on our own, that we are a community of broken, weak beggars simply telling other beggars where to find bread and dripping in the grace of heaven. Simon of Cyrene was the first one to truly understand what Jesus meant back in Mark 8 when he said this to the disciples, pick up your cross and follow me. Carrying a cross for Simon meant carrying it for Christ. When we pick up our cross, we are picking up the cross for Christ. Dying to self means accepting our fragility and living into the strength of Jesus. It's why Jesus said to the Pharisees, I came not to call the righteous, but the, but the sinners, not the healthy, but the sick. Why? Because it's the sick who know that they need him. You know, there's a car alarm going outside. <laughs> you know, this... This pandemic has made us all feel really weak. There's an invisible enemy that we can't control. We're not used to living within limitations and having decisions made for us. There's a weakness in not being able to fix it or to be able to fix what other, other things are going on that make us feel fragile. For pastors, for myself, this year has made us feel very weak. We don't have all the answers. We're not always sure how to best interpret the times or the situation. It's a vulnerable place. Maybe some of you have felt the same in your own workplaces, in your homes, with family and friends who maybe think differently than you. But it's only in a place of weakness when we can actually say with conviction some of these words that we sing in our songs on Sunday mornings, like that old hymn, Guide me, O thy great Redeemer, pilgrim through this barren land. I am weak, but thou art mighty. Hold me with thy sovereign hand. It's only when we are dependent that we can cease trying to fix everything all the time and instead pray in every situation, Holy Spirit, come to my aid. Fill me, Lord, with your wisdom so that I can serve you. Because the reality is that if we are not led by the power of the Holy Spirit, of Jesus Christ, if, if that's not the power that we are seeking to be filled with as a body of Christ, then what's our purpose? Why are we here? The world doesn't need another religion that seeks to impose power and control by creating rituals and rules. The world needs a people that are willing to fall on their knees in dependence on the almighty king of the cosmos who holds all things together so that his power can be demonstrated through us. Because my goodness, what kind of a community would we be if we were all dead to ourselves and alive in Christ? how we would care for one another. And that's the whole point. See, because transformation of the heart leads to transformation of the whole community. In expressing my own weaknesses, I allow others to then share their weaknesses. Because in this family, weakness is not weak. It's where the Holy Spirit meets us. 
It's where the Holy Spirit can come and fill us and remind us that the power that lives within us and desires to live within us seeks to draw us closer to the suffering Christ. And out of that place comes true transformation. Matured faith in God and deepened joy and vulnerability with one another. Because then our kingdom boat or our kingdom canoe starts to look like this. Like a community of people who value vulnerability. Who value humility and gentleness regardless of how weak it seems. Who value sometimes having to be looked, on, looked down on because we stand for something bigger than ourselves. Who value listening over speaking. Who value setting aside sometimes our own opinions and our own arguments because we really want to hear and see others. A people through whom, the people I should say, through whom the kingdom of God is launched is those who are, as one scholar put it, a beatitude people. Those who are poor in spirit, who mourn, who are meek, who hunger and thirst for the kingdom of God, who hunger and thirst to learn the way of Christ. The way in the world's eyes of weakness. How do we give space for God to demonstrate his power? You know, it's, it's why we can actually pray for our politicians, even though sometimes they make us angry and do things that we don't like. We can pray for them because we know that they need it. Because dependence on Christ is how the kingdom of God comes to earth. Through a people whose context is always changing, but whose source of power remains the same. Our problem, dare I say, is that we do not often trust this power. We don't inhabit the politics of Jesus because it often feels too weak. We still want to feel powerful. We still want to feel like we have control and independence. We want to be able to make our own decisions because it feels good and it feels fair. We don't ever ask about what it means to enter into the sufferings of Christ, to share in the sufferings of Christ, because we don't really want to know the answer. But friends, trusting in this power means trusting even when we're not sure that it actually works. Trusting in this power means that we depend on the Holy Spirit from whom this power comes. Because that's what Jesus did. That's how Jesus lived his life. In constant dependence on the Holy Spirit. And then, if that's how we live, something beautiful is formed then we have a whole community of people who recognize their frailty, acknowledge their weakness, receive the mercy of his grace, ask for the Holy Spirit's power to fill their lives, to live into their lives, live in utter dependence on that spirit through prayer, and be continuously filled by the power of God to willingly then carry the burdens of others and walk alongside the brokenhearted. That is our kingdom vision. That is our political agenda because it's our king's way. 
He bids us, as our kingdom leader and we his citizens, to live a different way. I can't emphasize that enough. We are called to live a different way, to embrace a different kind of power, to draw others into this kingdom canoe where vulnerability and mourning and poorness of spirit and hungering for his kingdom are signs of his presence and his power at work. He bids us to come and die. All the while boasting in the power of our weaknesses. Because as Paul put it, we know that when we are weak, that he is strong. Amen. Would you pray with me? Living God, we pray now by the power of your Holy Spirit that you would allow the words of the scriptures to sink deeply into our hearts and into our minds. Help us, Lord, to be emptied of all of our own illusions and selfishness and ideas of power, that we may further embrace the power and the gift of your Holy Spirit. Bless us now, Lord, with that gift we pray in your name. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Willoughby Church Sermon Podcast. The Willoughby Church Podcast Network also has podcasts about discipleship, the Heidelberg Catechism, and even a podcast hosted by some of the youth. You can find out more about the Willoughby Church Podcast Network by going to willoughbychurch.com.